0: Greetings, dear listeners. Britain feels like it's in freefall these days, with the pound tanking and the post-Brexit arrangement showing serious weakness. Shadi and I decided to call up our old friend Josh Glancy, a journalist at the Times of London, to talk about all of that, as well as the role that monarchy has played in keeping the country together. It's an incredibly rich conversation about British political culture and how it all works and doesn't. Stick around for part two of the conversation, where we get more personal What's it like growing up in the UK as a non-Christian? How is it different from the United States? And what is Britain's current relationship with the legacy of its empire? It's for paying subscribers only, so head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to get the whole thing. On to the show. Josh, I I guess I really just want to ask you uh, what the hell is going on in England right now. It's, you know, it feels like it's been on this crazy track since Brexit, right? And and, uh, I mean, just in the news right now is is that the pound is uh, on par with the dollar. And I, you know, listeners probably don't know, but I'm on my way to Scotland and my vacation is getting cheaper by the day. But I I also (laughs) wonder whether... (laughs) What's going to happen by the time I get there? Uh, what's 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 going on in England?
1: Yeah, I'm missing my uh, missing my dollar salary at the moment. Um, it's it's mind blowing, honestly. I mean, no one has a clue. Is, is my first answer. We are the breaks are off, um, and I wrote a piece back in February for the Sunday Times saying, w- "Will the perma crisis ever end?" And it was based on your exact point that o- almost from the moment that Brexit result came in, it feels like we've been on some kind of Roller coaster and, and, and it's been, I mean, Brexit felt like a sort of huge existential deal and then uh COVID happened and Brexit suddenly seemed like not such an existential deal, but, uh, and then uh, we've never really come out of the pandemic. The sort of financial hangover from it has been catastrophic. We've had this cost of living crisis. We've got this energy crisis, the war in Ukraine, uh, and now this kind of economic crisis that seems at least, to my mind, fairly self-inflicted by our new government. So, um, I don't know. None of us. I mean, I remember as a teenager when it was two dollars to the pound, uh, and I used to go shopping in New York uh, and buy all my kind of Abercrombie and Fitch wear, you know, uh, for dirt cheap. And now it's it's the other way around, and so uh, <laughs> we're all sort of pinching ourselves, really. But
2: but there is some but there is some good news, and I just want to make sure that we highlight this. The monarchy is alive and well (laughs) and british uh, 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 brits or britons are (laughs) are coalescing around this national symbol and i think no on a more serious note i think there is this really interesting contrast where a lot of the everyday politics in britain seems to be going downhill but then you have this real rallying behind the crown. And I think one thing we do wanna unpack here, since you are an actual British person and we don't always have them on the show, like I, I personally don't understand. So Demir, Demir is focused on the pound and how things mm-hmm. are just like going really downhill economically. Yeah, look, managing an economy is difficult. Managing a nation state, things go downhill all the time. You know, Britain will survive. What I don't understand is this. I I have been surprised at the sheer degree of outpouring of sympathy and love and admiration for the British monarchy, for the Queen. And I've lived in Britain. I lived there not a whole, not a very long time, but for two years. And I have to say that I'm genuinely confused as to, I think there's probably some obvious emotional reasons, but, um, but maybe we can also go into that and, and how you see the contrast. Because, you know, I'm guessing that Brits are negative on their prime minister, Liz Truss, who seems somewhat incompetent but they are, they have this renewed vigor for the crown and, and those are coexisting.
1: Yeah, I mean, not only are they coexisting, they're, they're probably in some form of, of negative correlation in a way, I think. The 10 days of official mourning for the queen uh, in which politics was suspended felt like uh, quite a blessed relief actually uh, for the country and, and for the political class. I mean, you could go on Twitter and we wouldn't have to sort of cover your eyes in horror at uh, what you see on your feed. It it was a moment of not total unity, but pretty close to it. And a moment of, yeah, okay. Some sadness, but actually, uh, you know, she was 96, she died in her castle. She had an exemplary reign for the most part. So, um, you know, w- one mourned her at her, her, her death, but also celebrated her, her life and her reign quite, quite easily. And, um, yeah, it was. I, I think it's not a coincidence that um, people felt so involved with that because I think people quite needed a break from from the last six years of crisis and confusion and war and and everything else that we're looking at in our news feeds right now.
0: But Josh, I mean, you know, I, I you know, we definitely want to talk about the monarchy. Uh, I mean, I think that that was the idea behind all of this. But really, you know, I don't want to get caught in the current moment, but. This current moment hit like right as the pageantry over the monarchy ended. Is the positive sort of afterglow of the, of the, the funeral and the coronation, um, is, is that still sort of sustaining the, the, the country or is it, are you just now flung back into, into the maelstrom? What, is it, what does it feel from, like right now?
1: I would say from the moment the funeral was over and coverage switched to something else, it, it was buried she was you know I mean, she was literally buried but it, you know it was um <laughs> it was no longer front of mind at all the monarchy exists almost like in the substrate of britain you know is it's 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 a kind of ever present the queen is on your coins she's on your stamps she's on your symbols um you often don't even think about it very much it's just there it's a kind of bedrock um and yes it's in the newspapers all the time there's endless scandal and 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 books about it but but really for most of us, it's just an ever present. It's like a kind of reassuring uh, backstop, if you like, to society. So we, literally, I mean, Liz Prust, Liz Truss pressed the button on this mini budget about two days after or three days after the funeral, and it was away we go. And who has time to think about the queen now when interest rates are going up to God knows what, 6% next year and um, the pound is down at parity with, with the dollar. It's uh no one's thinking about the Queen anymore. It's it's all just happening so fast.
2: People have moved on from the Queen that quickly.
1: Well, well, well I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say moved on in a sense that I, I'm saying that they, they sort of operate almost on different levels. It's like a kind of different form of consciousness. Like we will never forget the Queen. I think she'll be one of the sig- most significant monarchs of, of British history in some ways. Um certainly of modern British history. Um but and we will talk about her and remember her as long as we all live, but but it it doesn't it doesn't live at the forefront of your mind, um, particularly with everything else that's going on.
0: Well, so, Josh, you know, I mean, Shadi and I were talking about this, I don't know, two episodes ago. We were just sort of batting around some stuff around the monarchy where we sort of thought it would be, you know, fun to to delve into it some more. I, is it, you know, for, for an American, and I do want to talk about sort of the weird American obsession about monarchy. You've mm-hmm. written about that. But for an American to, to rap, I'm not a monarchy obsessed person. Sounds like Shadi, even though he spent two years in in uh, at Oxford, he wasn't touched by it at all. I, is is the, 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 the kind of analog basically the weird reverence that Americans have for the constitution? Is that the, the easiest way for, uh, for an American to grasp the role that monarchy plays in, in sort of the British psyche?
1: Yes, I think so. I think it, perhaps even more than the constitution, um, I would say the flag in a way. Someone, someone I can't remember who it was, once compared the queen to, to, to try and explain it to an American Um, God I think it was Douglas Murray I'm now quoting (laughs) Douglas Murray Um, but he said if you imagine the Queen is the American flag a symbol that you see every day that is ever present in your lives that has enormous emotional resonance to almost everyone mostly love, not everyone Um, but it's not something you necessarily give a huge amount of thought to on a daily basis it's just there Uh, and I think for a lot of Brits that's the monarchy, I think there are passionate monarchists in Britain, I think a lot of People are dispassionate monarchists. They they sort of generally approve of it. They liked the queen more than the institution. She was considered particularly special as a monarch. Um, but for a lot of people, it is just a kind of an ever-present, uh, as I said, sort of backstop uh, to, to public life.
2: It's fascinating that you compare it to the American flag. And I I have to disagree a bit there. And I'll, I'll I'll be curious how you respond to this. I actually think the flag does not really qualify on any of those metrics i mean (laughs) um so first of all i almost i very rarely see the american flag i live in a you know a liberal enclave i suppose which also happens to be the capital of the country um the flag is not something people have hanging around um and i would actually say that especially younger left-leaning folks When they what they associate with the American flag is actually increasingly nationalism, Trumpism. And it's no surprise that if you go to Trump rallies or Trump boat races, apparently that's a thing that you covered um, in one of your columns (laughs) a while back. So, you you know, that there you see the flag a lot. So it's become politicized. And Mm. I don't think Americans love the flag. I don't think that it unifies us. Um, I don't. and it's not really in the background, uh, in the way that the queen is on in the background, in the sense that she, as you said, she was on she was on um, <laughs> pound notes and coins and whatever else it might be. I mean, you you were in the U.S. for a while, and um, I'm curious, like, does that resonate with you that the flag is is no longer, Maybe it was like that, or it was supposed to be that. 20, 30, whoever, whatever, or maybe during the Cold War at some point. But do you think that it's still the right comparison more so than the constitution? I think I'm open to the idea that the constitution is more the analogous the analogous thing here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I take your point. I think, I mean, the flag has become politicized as, as the British flag was it in the 1980s when it became the symbol of, of the far right here. Um, but I do think that if you step out of kind of a step out of the left and the online left I do think the flag is still pretty ubiquitous at every uh on every on almost every street it's at every sporting event um you know it is uh it's on a lot of (laughs) Ralph Lauren shirts or whatever you know and it is it is a kind of ever present in American life but it's not a perfect analogy I I mean I suppose that the the, the reverence that the political reverence that people have for the constitution um in some ways is is as something that stands above well does the constitution stand above politics because you look at the supreme court and 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 constitutionalism versus you know it's it's opposite in the court and uh, you know is anything is anything left in american life that kind of soars above all that maybe the sort of golden eagle or something i'm not sure
2: well i think part of the problem is that we we all as americans love the constitution or admire it or like it but we just don't but we don't agree on what it actually means. Mm. And that's where it becomes very divisive, where I think the difference is with the monarchy in Britain, it doesn't have a lot of inherent political meaning, but feel free to disagree with me on that, in the sense that um, the queen or now the king don't actually have any political power. They they don't actually do any... I I don't mean to be mean. I was going to say they don't do anything of note, but of note, I suppose, is subjective. They offer... They offer the the notion of unity. They they get they reassure people. And I think in one of your recent columns, you you compared the monarchy to a soothing balm. Or um, and then you you were go, you were touring around Britain, asking people how they felt, and they couldn't put into words why they mm-hmm. loved the monarchy because for them, it was like talking about love. How do you explain love to someone who doesn't feel mm-hmm. it? it's something intangible, it's emotional, it's hard to describe, but it's there. And that's good for people. People want something to hold on to. But if you ask people, what is the political meaning of the British monarchy? It's unclear to me what that would actually mean in a tangible sense, where the constitution does have uh, pretty far-reaching political implications.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I think that's a fair point. I think... um... The Republican argument, which does exist in the UK, uh, possibly probably most eloquently made by, by Tom Nairn, the Scottish Marxist historian in his book, The Enchanted Glass, uh, is that actually the monarchy is highly political. And that, that, that feeling it engenders in people, that sense of as being a soothing balm, is actually deliberate. And actually it's a, it's a, it's a means of stultifying British political life. It's a means of entrenching certain privileges and certain systems and, and systems of power in British life. Uh, this is, as you can tell, a very Marxist interpretation. But, um, but the, you know, there is an argument that actually the very blandness of the monarchy uh, is its sort of strongest political weapon. And, if it, you know, the Queen was a master of blandness. We still don't really know who she was, what she was like. I mean, we have lots of morsels and tidbits and anecdotes, but fundamentally she kept her true self masked from the people for 96 years which is an astonishing feat i i would say astonishing political feat in a lot of ways it's not politics as as many americans would understand it or even as some brits would but it is in arguably a, a form of politics and and you know the the monarchist argument is that well she takes the sting out of public life i mean you look at america you look at the trump era for example uh you know and, and i wrote this in, in a piece like what what America wouldn't have given in some ways during that time for a, an apolitical president to stand above it all and unite the country. Um, so that's the monarchist argument, but, but the Republican argument is that actually it, it drains us. It drains the sort of vigor out of our public life and it, it deadens any possibility for reform. This is a country with all these kind of ancient hang-ups and privileges that we can't seem to move past at times. We still have hereditary peers in our second chamber. I mean, dukes and earls, this, bishops, all these kind of strange anachronisms. So, um, so you can see it as a very political institution. You know, I just,
0: Shadi, you really should write a piece, how the flag means nothing to you, because it, <laughs> it, it struck me as you were saying that, that I mean, I, I, you know, I, I live in the same city as you do, I'm, I'm in the same bubble as, as you are, but I, I do think you're wrong there on the flag. I, I do think that like, the, the symbolism is still pretty powerful Uh, across America, but that maybe gets to one sort of question I have uh, on this is, um, are are you seeing sort of, you know, I mean, I've seen a couple of pieces talking about that, you know, the queen was, as you described it, uh, such a presence and was able to, you know, at least sort of marshal this inchoate power of the monarchy in in an effective way as, you know, a bland and effective way. Um, Is there, is there... a a rift also among young people and sort of more progressive people that uh, they they look at all this pomp and say, okay, well, now she's gone. Charles is not that. We can start dispensing with this. Is there a kind of maybe analogous drift in attitudes, maybe liberal progressive attitudes in, in Britain towards a monarchy that sort of Mirror Shadi's disdain for the American flag?
2: Okay, wait, can I just offer up a point of (laughs) clarification? I don't want, because I... uh,
1: um, We've got a a flag banner on our hands there.
2: (laughs) I I like the American flag a lot. I don't (laughs) drape myself with it. Um, I don't know if people do. No, I mean, I guess people don't. They have it on shirts sometimes, I suppose. There was actually this famous picture of um, a Muslim woman... Wearing a hijab, headscarf, and the headscarf was the American flag. Very powerful image. I, but I'm just—I'm actually, as you, as any listener will know, I'm—I'm I'm mostly criticizing liberal elites for their disdain for the American idea because that's what the flag represents. Uh, just to clarify for newcomers, because I'm sure that Josh will bring new British listeners, and I don't want them to get the wrong idea. Okay, Josh, over to you.
1: Okay, so. Generation gap. I mean, yes, to some extent, inevitably, you know, among younger and more progressive people, there is less of a a veneration for the monarchy. I mean, the Queen was almost universally popular, even amongst millennials and Gen Zers. um, But, you know, she was sort of the nation's grandma, if you like. But, you know, yes, there is less veneration for the monarchy as an institution as you go younger. But it's remarkably how well it holds up. And uh, as people get older, I think they do start to appreciate its presence more. I know I did. I was quite a staunch Republican as a as a student. And I'm now pretty ambivalent about the whole thing. Um, so I don't fear for the existence of the monarchy in Britain. I mean, that was always the thing. People always said, oh, the Queen dies. No one really likes Charles. He's a kind of tainted figure. And that'll be that. That'll be the slow drift into, into the abolition of the monarchy. I don't really buy that. I think her death was a was a moment of renewal of interest in the institution, and people got to reconsider what it was and what it meant to them. And, uh, and I think the response was broadly positive. But the British monarchy is outside of uh, outside in the developed world. It is almost uniquely powerful and splendid. Uh, not, and I mean, maybe you could go to Thailand or somewhere and find something similar. But but I think that may change. You know, whether we move to something closer to what Denmark has or Holland or Spain, um, where we slim down the institution and uh, make it less of a presence in everyday life. That's a possibility. But, you know, the truth is, I don't know, people really love it. And people and the more difficult modern life gets, I think the more people appreciate the pomp and the circumstance. I mean, I, I had a really interesting moment. I was in Belfast. I was following King Charles III on his new his sort of tour of the four kingdoms. And he went to Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales. And, and I was in Belfast and he was driving down from uh, Hillsborough Castle to, um, to a cathedral in the city. And everyone was lining the streets to see him. Well, all the Protestants were, there weren't many Catholics there, but, um, <laughs> and, he came down and he was in a kind of black BMW with four Range Rovers. He looked like a sort of, uh, you know, a, a, a high class senator and not not the king. Whereas his other parts of the tour had he'd been in the uh, uh, is it the Rolls Royce Phantom. It's incredible sort of old fashioned royal car. Uh, and people were really disappointed. A couple of people turned around to me. They were like, well, that was rubbish. You know, they <laughs> wanted the car. They wanted the white horses and the cockades and the... Company of Royal Archers and all the absurd anachronisms that we saw on some of the other marches that week, um, because it was an it was a break from the mundane, screen focused realities of their daily lives. Okay,
2: so I, I, I don't want to. I want to save. You said that there's a perception that Prince and now King Charles is tainted. You know i take a little bit of offense to that because i think i know what you're talking about josh but we'll we'll um we'll save that for part two so listeners have something to look forward to um but um i think that i've got you know on a more substantive point and i'm genuinely interested in this and i've been thinking about it more as of late um is it actually true that the british monarchy Um, softens polarization. Does it, as you say, Mm. take the sting out of politics? Because I think from an American perspective, we can look at Britain and we can say, oh, well, actually it was quite polarized during Brexit. In one of your pieces, you say that disagreements over Brexit don't quite match the disagreements we have in America. And I think that the analogy you used is, if you're dating um, in America, In a liberal city and you say um you know (laughs) i'm a republican or i supported donald trump that can often or most of the time be a deal breaker and i don't know if this is true but i took that to mean that brexit like you could go out on a date in london and you could say that oh i support brexit and that wouldn't necessarily be a huge problem you wouldn't be beyond the pale and i just want that i I want to clarify that because i think a lot of americans would have assumed that brexit was a kind of dividing line within families among friends and it got really really intense although i could be you know misconstruing that
1: no uh you're right it did and and there was a lot of tearing our hair out about polarization and are we turning into america and The cultural wars have come to our shores at last. And um, yeah, families were sundered and relationships were broken. And I'm sure dates ended prematurely as a result. I just don't think it quite has the existential heat that the Trump era had in America, where people, I mean, maybe some people in the margins and the fringes felt this, but I think a lot of people in the middle just genuinely didn't feel that passionate about it. You could, I mean, I was a Remainer, but I really didn't care that much. I mean, I'm pretty annoyed by the whole thing, but like, it, it doesn't. You huh. know, people in my family voted for Brexit. I don't hate them for it. I, I occasionally make the odd s- sarcastic remark about it, but like, there are plenty of people in B- Britain who felt quite tepidly about it. I didn't meet that many Americans. There are some, but I didn't meet that many who didn't have a fairly strong opinion on Donald Trump. Um, so I just think it, it just had it just t- it has less heat in it, and I don't think you can as- ascribe that ascribe that. Exclusively to the existence of the monarch. But I do think it is a system that allows us to hate our politicians without wanting to kill them, if you see what I mean. Well, yeah.
0: Well, so, but, you know, you're, you're mentioning earlier that the Republican argument against it, right? That it actually sort of keeps uh, uh, the polity quiescent in a way. And, I, you know, I, I, in, in reading all this stuff about it, I always forget how to pronounce the guy's name. It's Walter. Badgett is that how? how Badgett, Badgett, Badget. yeah. Uh, the the author of the the famous, I mean, was he the Economist. Uh, he was the founding editor of the Economist, wasn't it, or, or
1: very early uh, on? Not founding, but he was the sort of uh, iconic editor of
0: and and writer of the English Constitution, where he has that 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 clever flip side, I guess, the, the sort of monarchist argument for exactly that—that that, you know, it's the it's to distract the the rabble while the dirt, the dirtiness of politics actually happens behind behind the mm. scenes. It's the, the the flip side of the. Of the same thing. I mean, I guess that the question for me, you know, sort of at least being sympathetic to the monarchist argument for that this is necessary to keep a country together, um, is there? Would there be danger of, of you know, if the monarchy literally just sort of went away within the next ten years, somehow abolished itself? Turns out Charles just doesn't want to do it, and somehow you know, just it, it drifts away. Would it? Would would that be a way to test Shadi's proposition? I mean, would, would Britain cohere less? Like, fundamentally, would it, would it, uh, would it get nastier?
1: Well, uh, on that point, I, I take uh, quite a sort of small c conservative view. And this is kind of why I'm very loosely in favor of keeping the monarchy nowadays, is because I, I believe that when an institution is so rooted in, in a nation's history and identity, um, that to take it out would would inevitably cause turmoil. You know, it's a difficult counterfactual because I think if you uprooted the monarchy or ripped it out of British public life, I think I think you would see turmoil and distress because it's been there for so long. And I think that's a strong argument for keeping it. I mean, remember one of the few lectures I attended at university that stayed with me was by the Marxist philosopher G.A. Cohen, and and he he argued that and it was actually a, a total argument for conservatism, which is small C conservatism, which I, I, I was surprised to hear from someone like him, but he was saying that, you know, institutions acc- accrue value as, as, you know, over time. And, and we don't, we often underestimate the, the, the pain and trauma that's caused by removing them and abolishing them. Um, the sort of anti-revolutionary argument, if you like. And uh, I, that's my view on the monarchy. So I, I think it would, Um would we be capable of living in a more in a with a president and a republican system yeah sure i'm sure we'd get used to it you know we're still a vaguely functioning country at least except for this week <laughs> um but uh, i do think the, 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 the to lose the monarchy abruptly in that way would be would be very distressing hmm.
2: so one thing i struggle with is when we say that the monarchy in britain is powerful i just want to interrogate this word power and powerful because I don't fully understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, because, okay, so we're talking about um, a constitutional monarchy that doesn't really have political prerogatives and it's supposed to be a political, um, above politics, that sort of thing. But maybe, can you, I mean, what does the monarchy, to what extent can the monarchy interfere even around the margins in daily politics. I mean, clearly um, the queen was very careful to not even, as you say, not even make apparent what she believed. Like we, that's remarkable to me. We actually Mm. don't know who this person is. And and I'm just surprised that like no one in the palace did some like tell all story or here's Mm. when I hung out with the queen, where did the queen go out for dinner? Like when she was younger, um, did she go out on the town? Um, Like, it's just amazing to me that there wouldn't be any account of a distinctive personality. Um, That's just one thing that I find incredible. um, And that must take a lot of self-discipline to basically hide yourself in that way. But that might also be particular to her and i wonder if prince slash king sorry king charles now who obviously has more of a political background he has taken positions in the past he has said potentially controversial things to what extent could he test the limits could he could he in a sense politicize an apolitical institution and use the weight of the monarchy to to actually affect policy in some way. And that would obviously test, not necessarily, um, well, I mean, Britain doesn't really have like explicit rules on this, but so some of it would be testing norms. And that's where it gets like a little bit fuzzy. You're Mm. not supposed to do certain things, but theoretically you could do them, you could push.
0: Well, I mean, even to, to, Mm. to build on that, Josh, Maybe you can uh, remind
1: listeners. I left and... Josh speechless. No,
0: no, 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 no. But I, <laughs> no, I had...
1: I've been. I was making notes because there were about six, six questions. In the well, no. I, I, <laughs> look, Josh, it, we don't want to be inter- interrogating
0: you here. I just, it's, it's, it's just sort of like a. a, <laughs> no, a fascinating. A, a broad sort of area of interest. You know, I mean, one thing you might sort of remind listeners and explain to me again uh, the whole, the whole again. Listeners should remember there is no, what Shadi was alluding to there, right? There's no, there's no written constitution. It's, 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 it's all precedent in a lot of ways. How, how did that, 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 that whole story about proroguing parliament, what was that all about and how did that work and what was the- Sorry, Demir, th- pro-what? Pro-rogue. Isn't that the, the word, Josh? Yeah, that is the word. That's, uh, it, that, it, it came up that, that uh, at some point during the crisis, it was with Boris Johnson, might have even happened with Theresa May, there was some call for... for she wouldn't dissolve parliament, but basically called the session to end. And would that trigger an election or something like that? It's sort of in her power, isn't it? Or was? Um,
1: right. So the prorogation of parliament happened in 2019. Um, that, was, that is, like a lot of things, it's theoretically in her power. Um, but uh, the uh, prime minister advises her to do it. Uh, and she does it, basically. Um, but the it, it got shut down in the courts, basically. Hmm. Uh, it was an attempted prorogation that, that the courts uh, basically squashed. So she doesn't have the power then? She was, I think it was... Revealed through sort of tortuous ways that she wasn't particularly happy about this. Um, every once in a while, the Queen sort of very subtly makes her opinion known on something. She did it during the 2015 Scottish referendum when she was asked by some well-wishers outside of church what she thought about the referendum, whether Scotland should break up with the UK and be independent. And she said, I think people should think very carefully before they vote, which is sort of... <laughs> a masterpiece of political messaging (laughs) Um, uh, and was a headline, you know, with headline all over the country because, because everyone kind of knew what she was saying, but, but it was a kind of blameless intervention. Um, So, but the prorogation is a good example, you know, of the limits of Royal power. There's nothing she can do. Uh, Charles knows this too. I mean, he has a history of intervening inappropriately in his political issues that he cares about from architecture to planning, to environmentalism. Um, and there are all these memos he's written to politicians called the Black Spider memos that were pretty highly inappropriate. Uh, and he knows, having watched his mother do this for 73 years, um, or pretty almost 73 years, uh, that he can't behave like that now that he's king. He's been quite explicit about that. But he will be unable to resist being more interventionist uh, and I think at this point, people are expecting that, honestly. There was a whole play called King Charles III by Mike Bartlett in 2014 that was about this very thing, and it all ended in a total debacle. I think he'll put his thumb on the scales a little bit more, uh, but ultimately he knows that the survival of the institution depends on on it being at least perceived as apolitical uh, and above politics. And so in answer to your question earlier, Shadi, like, what is royal power in Britain? Um, it's, it's mostly it's most, I mean, there are, it's mostly really soft power, but, but a lot of it, um, you know, I'm always interested watching the royal lobby, uh, the journalists who cover the royal family permanently. And it's like the rules of journalism. And I, I say this, these are esteemed colleagues. They do a great job. The structure of it, is, of course, like, you know, completely unlike any other form of journalism, you're not holding them accountable. You're not, searching for scandal or truth it's a constant negotiation of you know what what is one allowed to say what are the limits of propriety and um and it, totally you know totally different to how we cover our politics which is we sort of smear them in as much shit as possible and see what sticks um <laughs> uh, and so you know royal power is that sense of you of, of being t- you know um untouchable almost uh, of there being these very clear limits and i think we're going to see some of those limits tested uh, in the media during Charles's reign, because there is quite a lot. My colleague Gabriel Pogrund at the Sunday Times has done fantastic investigation work on Charles's finances, his charity work. We're talking, you know, Qatari Sheikh's giving him a million bucks in, or a million pounds in, in a Fortnum and Mason's bag over the table for his charity, which which helps support some of his country houses so Wait, they
2: put in a, they put it in a in a bag and yeah like literally they've
1: just yeah put, put in a lot Mason's of bag they're kind of bright they tend to be sort of bright blue carrier bags couldn't they just wire it <laughs> well i think it's I more think impactful that's... when someone just hands you a <laughs> sack of cash but, you know that is that's pretty 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 out there stuff um there will be more stories about charles there will also be Um, the next series of The Crown, which is going to involve, which I think you alluded to earlier, Tampon Gate. Uh, And there will be Prince Harry's memoirs coming out uh, in November too. So there's going to be some bad publicity ahead for Charles. So I, I think we're going to see, I think he may test the limits of his power, but I think we're also going to see the media test the limits of how far it's willing to go to undermine the crown and attack the crown. It's always been very happy to attack members of the royal family, but leave the Queen was always left pretty much untouched, except a little bit when Princess Diana died, uh, and then the country was in such a ferment that he, she she caught some flack for that too.
2: okay, this might be a dumb question, Josh, but who how is the royal budget overseen? Um, <laughs> oh is that a, uh, oh great, okay. It's controversial? <laughs>
1: well, it's, it's well, it's kind of controversial. I mean, one of the weird things about British public life is Parliament almost never speaks about the Royals. Uh, it always has, like, there's like an emerta of pe- like, people in parliament basically don't bring up royals because like the whole Prince Andrew uh, paying off uh, after being alleged of having sex with a seat, 17-year-old American girl uh, didn't wasn't discussed in parliament. It's seen as uh, off limits, which is quite strange. Parliament how, does, con- how it does it, control the How the would guard. it be discussed in parliament though? I mean,
0: I, I, I even sort of, I, I, how would you discuss that in parliament? I
1: guess charges or I... I You could express distaste Um, if you were a left-wing Republican MP, of which there are several, you could say, well, isn't this an example of why this is a corrupt, decadent institution? Maybe we should abolish some of these minor royal titles and just keep the slim it down, which is something that's in the ether. Hmm. Um, Parliament does control the royal budget. Uh, Basically, the royal family has kind of public wealth, which is many billions of pounds, but it doesn't, is then given a grant out of that wealth by parliament uh, every year, um, which is known as the the sovereign grant, which it then spends on keeping up its palaces and doing its royal duties. How much are we uh, talking about here? uh, I think it's something like a billion pounds a year, but I can't can't remember exactly. But, you know, they have a lot of stuff. But, you know, the argument, which I think is right, that's always made, is that they bring in twice that in tourism um, and soft power, diplomacy abroad, you know, a royal state Hmm. visit as a diplomatic tool. I mean, the Americans in particular get incredibly excited by visiting Buckingham Palace. I mean, the Obamas love the Queen, you know, not just, not just the Republicans. Um, so that's their public money. They also have private money, which they don't pay inheritance tax on, um, which, uh, so Prince Charles has a, the Duchy of Cornwall estate, which he's now passed on to William, which he's quite been quite active in enlarging and investing in. And that's thought to be worth about a billion pounds. There was a good piece in the New York Times about this recently. Um, and that's a little bit sketchy as well, because he, he's able to make investments uh, and probably not be beholden to the same sort of rules and pushback that he might be if he were not the Prince of Wales or now the King. So um, their private royal finances, again, we don't know very much about it. We won't, we won't see the Queen's will, um, or very unlikely. Uh, and there is still a lot of mystery, almost deliberately, about how much how rich are they and where it where is it all. Hmm.
0: Uh, on 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 Americans' love of of the monarchy, I, you you wrote uh, a piece uh, sort of musing on this. Uh, I, I I guess it was you you alluded to it earlier, and we'll put all of them in the show notes, or, so so uh, listeners can uh, can read all your stuff. The the thing that that I find baffling. And I mean maybe I think this is where Shadi and I are, are on the same page is who are these people that love the monarchy among Americans? And let me be even even <laughs> let me be even somewhat nastier about this. I don't know any men who love the monarchy. I know mm. some some women who do. Mm. But like and you know, even when I'm reading your piece, Josh, I, I get the sense that it's it's if, if there are American men that love the monarchy, it's because their wives or girlfriends are, 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 are sort of really excited about it. And then they, they go over there. Maybe I'm overstating it and being a little nasty here, but like, am I onto something there?
1: Yes, I think it is, it is, it is quite gendered. Um, partly, I think maybe because we've had a queen for so long. Mm. Um, but no, it is, it, because it is, part of what they love about it is, is the soap opera. And it's the, it is the ultimate soap opera. And it's it's the fusion of kind of English or British tradition and grandeur with uh, just gossip politics, you know, and, and just this sort of tawdry realities of a family trying to hold itself together. And I think it's that combination that, you know, you go into supermarkets all over America, you see from, from Vanity Fair through the New York Post through to the supermarket tabloids, uh, they are on the front pages all the time. Mm. Um, you know, they have that reality TV show of like trying to with Prince Harry lookalikes. Um, obviously, the whole Meghan Markle thing has fascinated everyone and, and has touched kind of um, progressive and, and black America in a way that maybe not every other parts didn't. Um, so I, I do think it runs pretty deep. But you're right. If if I had to describe the, the quintessential royal american royalist i would be thinking of a middle-aged middle american sort of middle-class woman um who sort of devours a lot of glossy magazines hmm. well, but well i have some memory of, that's probably a bit of a stereotype <laughs>
2: <laughs> look i've have, i have some memory in the 90s um maybe this was an almost universal thing because diana was at a different level but i remember i remember that I mean, and my mom. I remember my my mom certainly followed it very closely, and I think she had, like many American women, an emotional attachment to Diana. And I don't think my mom necessarily fits into, um, the kind of uh, whatever we were describing, the kind of people who would otherwise be into the British monarchy. But um, although I will note, I will note, I do I do have a recollection of my late grandmother um egyptian you know who uh in egypt say you know would i don't know if she was 100 percent serious but she would sort of say things like you know if only we still had the british you know british colonialism that was actually not so bad if only like at least they were able to help run things more effectively and we could bring back the um, the king. Anyway, that's just like a little aside. <laughs> Let me try to remember where I'm going with this. <laughs> but but um, I think that Diana, Diana certain. Yeah, Diana certainly captures a certain moment. I think I think that I also remember that we were intrigued by the fact that Diana was dating. I don't know if there if it was official, but certainly she had a close friendship. Um, with an Egyptian man, Dodi Fayed, And I, I very much, I, I remember that very vividly, that there were conspiracy theories that not not with my family, but I remember like in broader Arab and Muslim circles, um, I don't wanna, it was probably a minority of people, but that <laughs> Diana was, um, was targeted and, and killed through this apparent car crash because she was going to marry a Muslim man and that had to be stopped.
1: Well, there were, anyway. there were plenty of those conspiracy theories in the UK too. So <laughs> <laughs> was, the Prince Charles did it with his buddies at MI5. That was the sort of, uh, sorry, Prince Philip, I mean, did it, did it through MI5. But I mean, yeah, uh, that has been comprehensively debunked. Um, <laughs> Thanks yeah, for I mean, uh, clarifying that. I mean, Diana was, But Diana was totemic for everyone in a way, because she, you know royalists and because she was a kind of anti-royalist royal she was as tony blair called her the people's princess uh she wasn't anywhere near as well liked during her life but her death made her a saint uh, a martyr even um and you know the royal family was blamed the tabloid press was blamed but she was and she was beloved in america i think partly because she represented that kind of royal rebellion, if, if you like. And Americans, hmm. they, they hmm. respected her rebelliousness, her her sense of the common touch, but they also admired the fact that she was a princess uh, and she sort of rose above above them too. Um, and I've, I've been on, the amount of taxi rides I've been on around America, people of all shades and stripes, uh, ages and, and genders saying to you, uh, oh, we love Diana. Oh, hmm. we're so, we were so sad. I mean, it was, I mean, it was 25 years ago. Uh, but... Um, it was just such an extraordinary collision of, of different things um, that, yeah, it resonated very deeply for Americans. I think Diana was almost as popular as the queen in some ways.
0: Uh, and, and that's a, the other part about America again, right? I mean, I, after my, my sort of uh, impolitic remarks about this being a woman's thing, there is the, right, the, the other part that, that our presidency is monarchical, right, and, and uh, mm. I, I, I was looking up before we, we had this conversation where where it came from, but it was it was Vice President uh, John Adams who who was suggesting different titles for the presidency, and I think like uh, you know uh, before Washington quashed all of them, it was his elective Majesty, his Mightiness, and then also his Highness, the President of the United States of America, and the Protector of their liberties. Those are all titles for the president that that were like being mooted. I think uh, you know in that in that early period. So I mean I don't know. I I, I there is that kind of weird. Reverence we have for the presidency, which I think we've lost with Trump, right? I mean, that's that's sort of what happened. And again, you've alluded to this before, but it's it's Trump that 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 was the real nail in the coffin of of just uh, tarnishing that almost sense of awe that we Americans have of the presidency, which is probably at least roughly analogous
2: to towards the the, the British experience. I don't think that's right, Demir. I think Bush ended it. I Maybe. mean, I I actually. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't have any recollection in my adult life of this kind of respect for the presidency that you're talking about. Well, no, but no and I remember. Go on.
0: Yeah. You know what I'm getting at? Just respect for the presidency. Obviously, politics was always there, and you were always like going after each other about it. But you know what I mean? Like there was still this this sense of, you know, for example, I just the Obamas, right? Not, not. I mean, I think a reasonably popular presidency, um, though the country became more polarized as it went on. But, but there was, you know, there's. Michelle Obama, the first lady. And there's all this sort of, I don't know how to put it, just
1: Re- reverence, I
0: reverence. And, and, and a lot of this kind of very soft coverage, this, you know, dewy glow. And I mean, Obama was also quite good at it, right? He had a, this uh, very talented set of photographers who, you know, had him doing this sort of stuff. And, and this was like out of the press. And there was a sort of aura to the presidency However much there was division over Obama, there was, there was, there was a kind of awe in the office. And, and let's also not forget, I mean, I think the fact that, that you know, uh, a black man was elected to the presidency, there was a kind of big significance to that. Not that we have elected a chief executive, uh, you know, of the country who happens to be black, but we have elevated a black man to the highest sort of exalted office, there was that that aura to it. I don't know, Shadi. Am I wrong? Am I am I am I just
2: pulling this out of my ass? I, I feel like it's true. No, no. Look, I think no. I see what you mean. I think I think you're partly right about that. Uh, I just I guess what I have in mind is, I I remember. I mean, the Bush years are really resonant for me, um, in part because I was living abroad for a good chunk of it, and I could see how people reacted to um, George W. Bush and what he was doing post nine eleven, the Iraq war. And I remember, I don't want to say shame. I don't want to overstate this, but i I do remember feeling like almost like I didn't want to, I don't know. I well, I was I'm trying to remember what I was like back then. I mean, I so it depends what not to go into like my life story, but I do remember there was this reticence to say, too much about being American because there was so much dislike and even hatred of George W. Bush in the Middle East. I don't, that wasn't the case with Trump. I don't ever, because I think it was very easy to say, you know, like obviously Trump doesn't represent me. I didn't feel like I had to explain Trump away when I was abroad, the way I did with George W. Bush, in in part because there was so much unity, and maybe this is actually would support your point, that there was so much unity, at least in the beginning around George W. Bush and even the Iraq war. I mean, there was considerable bipartisan support and there was almost a deference, especially after 9-11. But I remember feeling just in a very personal way, deeply uncomfortable with the presidency as this symbol so maybe i'm just projecting my own particular experience in that
1: regard that um anyway yeah i don't know josh does that
0: is Does it you know
1: i think in a way in a way i think i think shadi's your the shame that you and others feel when certain presidents are in office in a way reflects the admiration you have for the office itself it's 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 that you know, you you want someone who represents America well because the office is so mighty and powerful and splendid. And because, you know, I think one of the things that really bothered people about Trump, who hated him, was that all these trappings of American power and all these kind of flummery and th- th- that goes around the presidency was being given to this vain, egotistical sort of narcissistic man. Uh, and they were playing hail to the chief to him. And he has the Marine Band and he has the nuclear football and all these kind of trappings of the, being the most powerful man in the world, supreme commander, um, were given to this douchebag from New York. And I think, um, I, think, I think the office of the presidency, I think most Americans hold in enormous regard. I think they just happen not to, uh, you know, most of the time, half the country kind of hates the person who's in it.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, so let's, let's talk
0: about, you know, you mentioned tampon gate and I wasn't quite aware of it. So I Googled <laughs> it just now because that's not, I actually, wasn't either,
2: to be honest. And
0: that's, I don't think that's what Shadi wanted to talk about, oh, right. <laughs> but, but let's, let's maybe talk about tampon gate. It's, it's not a bad thing to segue into. Um, so, so he had a, a naughty conversation with Camilla talked like sex and tampons and somehow this leaked to the press, uh, like a decade ago. And yeah.
1: Yeah. These, were pretty, these were pretty fervid times around the Charles-Camilla-Diana love triangle. Or I don't know if it was all love, but yeah, Charles was having this affair with Camilla. And, you know, reporters then, this was before the great phone hacking scandal, uh, reporters then, would, would, they were intercepting the airwaves um, with scanners. They were eavesdropping on these conversations. There were all sorts of dirty tricks going on. And basically what was effectively, a, 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 you know, Phone sex between Charles and Camilla involving a sort um, of—I won't go into the full details—but sort of uh, there was a you know someone imagining that they were a a tampon. I mean, it's all out there. Yeah, Google uh, it, folks. Google it. It's all there. (laughs) Yeah, Google it. Just don't (laughs) make me say it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but that was all in the public eye, and I think it was so distasteful that not all the papers ran with it. But but it's it's you know it's known, and that's what I meant at the beginning when I said Charles is tarnished—not just by that, but but by the Black Spider memos by by a lifetime of, by the divorce, by what happened to Diana, by a lifetime of um, being a, a public figure who hasn't always been loved. Um, he's now presenting himself as this kind of cheerful, uh, dutiful grandpa, uh, and that may work. And there may be some truth in that, to be honest. Um, you know, the years have mellowed him and he is now happily married. And, um, but, but, but he's, a, he's a difficult character and he'll never be loved. The way Elizabeth was.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, go ahead, Shadi. No, no, I think you're going to say something important, Demir. <laughs> I don't Look, want to I'm, preempt I'm, that.
0: <laughs> I've been I've been baiting Shadi with this for a while. Uh, he didn't take the bait like two weeks ago when I put it out on Twitter, and it was it's something that I I was not aware of at all. But that 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 uh, King Charles actually you know uh, uh, has spent a lot of time studying Islam, right? And he's sort of a mm. student of it. Uh, am, am I is that is that you know, is that known outside? I mean, a friend of mine shared some article with uh, a bunch of sort of scuttlebutt, and it was funny because the tweet I, I I tweeted at Shadi was like, you know, first you guys win with Obama, now you now you get the, the first Muslim <laughs> king of England. This is amazing.
1: <laughs> no, he he is. Yeah. I mean, this is something our our, our friend ben Jude has written quite a lot about. He is a man of of, of great interests. He's a, he's a complex figure. He has great intellectual interests. He's he's very close with. Um, some sort of Gulf monarchs. He, um, sometimes too close, perhaps, he, uh, is very, he has very good relations with the Jewish community in Britain. I wrote a magazine piece a few months ago about a series of portraits he'd commissioned of the last Holocaust survivors in Britain, six portraits. It was a gorgeous project, really touching, beautifully done, really thoughtful. Uh, and yes, you know, a, a prince should be doing charitable works, but this spoke to a real sensitivity and thought uh, that I greatly admired. And, and many in, in the Muslim and, and Jewish community in Britain hugely admire Charles. They see him as a friend. Um, so there are, there are like complexities to this man. The environmentalism stuff has got me into trouble in the past, but many people now see it as being prescient, as being mm. ahead of his time, uh, that actually he sounded like a bit of a crackpot uh, in the 80s. But now it's really one of the great subjects of our time. Uh, and, and people, in a funny way, they kind of want him to show moral leadership on that. Without being too political, so it's a difficult time. Yeah,
2: I mean you're right, Josh. We um, we definitely
1: see Charles as a friend. <laughs> well, yeah, that's one I'm way speaking, of putting tra- it. I'm speaking for <laughs> b- people I know in the British Muslim community. I don't know if it's, it's a global reality, but so
2: um, uh, <laughs> so it is interesting because it's it's not. It is a conspiracy. Th- theory, I guess you'd call it that, but there there are, are actually articles that try to lay out the case that Prince Charles converted to Islam, so it is a, it is a somewhat amusing thing, but um, there are apparently people who believe this, um, and we can actually, I don't know if we should share it because we don't want to contribute to the spread of rumor, but um, there so is you are, actually You are claiming
1: it there. <laughs> there's an article
2: in it and actually like um, in in the Middle East forums journal and that that's Daniel Pipes's outfit so kind of islamophobic they're always looking into who's secretly a Muslim they wrote a, a very a quite well footnoted um you know, journal article on Obama being Muslim and went through a lot of the historical record, his time in Indonesia, what his... T- no, and I'm, I'm not even joking because I actually did read the entire piece and I found it in- intriguing, if not necessarily fully persuasive. But mm. um, but there, it's interesting how, first of all, I think it gets out of... And even the thing with Dodi Fayyad marrying potentially, you know, um, you know, marrying Diana and that sort of thing in the 90s, there are people who really fixate on secret Muslim conversion, that Muslims are getting into powerful positions through proselytization. I mean, we could do a whole episode on that, but I, I think it does reflect a very real paranoia that people have about the spread of Islam and perhaps even the vigor of Islam and the fact that it is is—it is attractive to a lot of people. Um, so that's like the, the more serious side of it. But I, I do, like,
1: I, I do wonder, um... <laughs> okay. no, I look, look. Um... Well, well, there, there, there's a serious, there's a sort of political point on that in the UK at the moment, which is Charles has sort of indicated that he wants to be a more ecumenical king, whereas Queen Elizabeth was as, about as staunchly Church of England as you could imagine. And and, and the, the monarch is the head of the Church of England. So that is their role ever since Henry VIII. Um Charles has indicated, partly because I think of his interest in other faiths, um, that he wants to be more ecumenical. No one's quite sure how that would work or what it would mean, but it's an interesting test case. Um, I, I, his interest is is genuine. He, he has studied the well, Quran. So, so I mean,
0: that, that's it's an interesting point, though. I mean, it sort of gets back to 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 this question of of the role of the monarchy, right? And and then also gets back to, the, I mean, points to the question of the the role of the established church uh, in 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 uh, in sort of British identity and and how do you how do you can you pull that apart and start pulling these things out? Um, and what the sort of impact on that would be? Now, I mean, uh, uh, obviously uh, it's it's not that you have to be uh, a Protestant to be British, far from it. I mean, Britain is is a quite a successful uh, uh, pluralist society. And yet, nevertheless, that's again one of those things that I always wonder about. I, I I've had I've told this story before on the on the episode, and I think I might have even said it to you, Josh. But it's it's a, a conversation I, I had with our, our um former editor of the um of The American Interest, um, when we were talking about uh Sam Huntington and his book about you know Protestantism and America, you know, the cranky book before he died. Um and and uh you know, we were talking about, and, and he grew up. Uh, you know, first first uh, uh, member of his family to go to school, got you know got a PhD, um, and and he was sort of musing on the fact of what a transformation he had seen in America uh, over the course of his lifetime, the diversity, and especially for Jews in America, what a transformation it had been, and how 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 wonderful that was. And yet, nevertheless, you know, when I pressed him on it, he did say, "There's something there's something that we might be losing." When we lose that sense of, I don't know, <sighs> markers of sort of cultural meaning, even if they're, you know, some kind of hegemonic thing. And that even, you know, losing that sort of Protestant noblesse oblige that that defined the uh the often bigoted uh you know early 20th century elites of America, that that may not be on balance also a good thing. That it's that, you know ultimate diversification is not necessarily a good thing. So, I mean, when you're talking that way about Charles, I wonder, I wonder if that's one of those things that you, know, you may look back on at some point and say, huh, you know, maybe it was for the good in some ways, but maybe we've lost something if he does end up going that way and sort of you know, drifting away from that role as
1: monarch. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think you know, even, even if a more diverse society is, is, a, is a better society in many ways is of course you lose something and i think um i think with charles the the idea of making it more ecumenical is is a a bit like the idea of making it having less pomp and circumstance i think it sounds good on paper but i think you may be onto something in that i think actually part of i think the monarchy is so bound up with protestantism and the church of england and it's part of what it represents to a lot of people i think it's hard to do um and also maybe not necessary i think a lot of you know as I said a lot of Jews and Muslims feel quite positively towards the monarchy in Britain and they feel actually and Elizabeth was very good at this she was uh she opposed kind of blood and soil uh white ethnic identity she was she didn't like um she didn't like um Enoch Powell you know she she trumpeted the, the commonwealth she fought Maggie Thatcher on apartheid sanctions um She danced with Kwame Nkrumah uh, in the 60s, you know, when there was still a color bar in southern USA. So um, she was quite good at um, at being a multicultural monarch uh, and not just the Britain, of course, of many other countries uh, around the world. So I think in that sense, Charles will want to continue that, whether that means being uh, uh, sort of pan-religious, I don't know. Hmm. Josh, when you say that the the monarchy
2: is very much bound up with um, the Church of England, it's interesting to me because that's not it's not self evident when I look at it. So, first of all, I mean, not to criticize the Anglican faith or the or the establishment in that regard, but I do think there is a certain it it seems to be relatively weak in terms of the hold that it has on believers. I mean, I saw I saw a survey. That I was looking at for something else the other week. And maybe it's overstating matters, but it was something like only 1% of Brits aged 18 to 24 um, attend, attend <laughs> Church of England weekly. It's just like, it just seems that maybe it's powerful symbolically, but it doesn't seem like there's actually a lot of Anglicans who take it seriously and practice and believe, and it's part of their daily life. So I just, when you say like, what does it mean to be bound up mm. with Anglicanism and the church and the Church of England as an institution?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think yeah, Anglicanism is is in many ways dying in the UK. Um, attendance is pitiful nowadays, uh, but it is still kind of woven into the fabric of British life. You know that the history, the way people understand themselves, our relationship to Europe is very bound up in ideas of the Reformation um, and the British monarchy as a kind of, um, as a Protestant monarchy, as a Christian uh, institution um, is important and it's important to a lot of the, you know, a lot of people who don't necessarily go to church um, still feel that they are I don't know, ethnically or or somehow Christian. Um, And like the fact that the monarchy is Christian too, and a lot of our schools still sing Christian hymns and pray from the King James Bible. And, you know, it's it's woven into the fabric of British life and British institutions in a way that's subtle, but it's very much there. I've got a friend who grew up Anglican, probably very rarely going to church, except maybe on Christmas. Uh, And she she met a Jewish guy and, and decided to convert to Judaism with him. Um, and she said to me, uh, you know, actually it wasn't until I converted that I realized how Christian I was and how, how, how being church of England and Protestant actually meant something to me as a British person. Huh. Uh, it is it, kind of there. It's sort of in the skin of, of, of people's lives, but, um, but you are right. It is a, it is a, it is a fading institution and it, it you know, it matters that no one young goes to church, uh, and, yeah, I don't know what its what its future is really.
0: But so, Josh, what, I mean, you know, when you talk about that, what was it like, you know, for you growing up, uh, you know, as as you're, you're Jewish, what what was that growing up in England like with that? I mean, maybe you can unpack that a little bit about that, how it's woven into uh, into the fabric. I mean, how is it woven into your self understanding as as uh, 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 a Brit?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I went to. Uh, there's there's an act of parliament was passed in the 19th century t- to establish the school I went to as an atheist school. It was set up by Jeremy Bentham, the philosopher, mm. um, as a bulwark against uh, Anglican hegemony, basically. Because, you know, the, in the 19th century, you couldn't even go to Oxford or Cambridge as a Catholic or a Jew until th- those things were eventually repealed. Um and my school was set up and immediately became a haven. It was in North London. It immediately became a haven for sort of liberals, uh, atheists and Jews uh, as a good school they could go to uh, that wasn't high Anglican, basically, mm. like the great English schools of Eton and Winchester, et cetera, were and are to some extent. Um, but nonetheless, we still had to sing hymns when I was a little kid. And half the school would sing and the other half would sort of mumble silently because uh, the other half was Jewish. But the... Um, <laughs> Uh, and, you know, we still had our Remembrance Day service on the 11th of November every year, which is a very holy sort of sacrosanct day in the British calendar. And you would, you know, the symbolism of that is all very Christian. So it was it was always there. And, you know, I I got to my third year of university. I studied history and I was an undergraduate. And I was deciding what to do for that. You do a thesis, a kind of long essay. And I was deciding what to do. And it occurred to me that I'd studied the Reformation Three times already in my life, uh, and not once ever written anything about Jewish history uh, in Britain, because hmm. um, I'd never, <laughs> I just never had any option to, and so I did it on the the, the sort of growth of early nineteenth century, Zio- uh, sorry twentieth century Zionism in Britain and how it became an identity. But p- for that, me it was a big part of that for me was actually being able to write about Jewish stuff for the first time. And even today, I sort of I have a column for the Jewish Chronicle, which is the ma- the main Jewish newspaper in Britain. And that's where I do my Jewish things. And then I write uh, for the Sunday Times and I very, very rarely touch on Jewish issues. And there's this kind of, I think schizophrenia is a bit strong, with this kind of division, if you like, where you're sort of privately Jewish, but publicly a little bit deracinated, that is quite um, distinct to the Anglo-Jewish identity. Um, and partly because the country is still so kind of subtly, but culturally Christian. Do you think that holds for Anglo-Muslims as well? So I think it does to some extent. Um, I think for Anglo-Muslims, obviously, a lot of them have darker skin and, uh, and are more marked out in that sense. A lot of Jews sort of pass as white, which, you know, is a thing in America too. But I do think it's true. Um, you know, my Muslim friends who had similar upbringings to me would have that kind of private public divide and they would go to mosque uh, but they wouldn't really talk about it uh, and their friends would often mostly be white and christian and um and all the assumptions around them would be white and christian and they would know that but their friends wouldn't their friends would just think that that was normal uh and so yeah i think i think you do you do have this sort of um this divide that this kind of pub split persona if you like that that um that you operate. I mean, I mean, spe- go ahead, Shadi.
0: I, I have a question for you, but but go ahead. And say Really, oh, for me? Yeah, I mean,
2: sort of. We oh, yeah, had no ask away. Well,
0: it's like <laughs> it's like this. You know, it's it's um as you're talking there, Josh, I wonder if it's it's it is the fact that it's the church is established, and so it ends up being a touchstone in a way that that you know it that that is just not it's 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 officially not how we do things in America. So I mean, me growing up not religious at all, I, I went through uh, sort of my upbringing in the States growing up, um, you know, going through the, these rituals, these sort of patriotic rituals, uh, you know, uh, reading uh, about the Constitution, the Pledge of Allegiance, all of this sort of stuff. But, but it, it's, it's, it's sort of this, this public religiosity, but, but, you know, being largely ignorant, not being raised religious at all. Uh, you know, I, I, I knew that these were vague illusions, but it, it never really hit me um, the way you're describing that, that, you know, you're, you're almost sort of your life gets split these two ways. And I'm wondering, Shadi, if in your case, you know, you're, you're raised religious. So the, the references to God are more explicit. But I wonder if it's the fact that 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 it's not an established church, that it's less woven in or it's more secretly woven in. I guess what I'm getting at is me personally, it took me a really long time to recognize just how religious um, a lot of the fundamental th- fundamentals in America are. And I think it's easy for people to overlook that and maybe not have this sort of split identity thing going on in America because it's everywhere, but it's also nowhere in a weird way. Whereas it sounds like in Britain, there's a, there's, it's, it's more explicit because the church is established. I don't know, Shadi, did you have this kind of experience, like Josh is describing, this this.
2: Can you say a bit more when you say that um, Christianity is sort of everywhere in the U.S. context? What, just
0: say more about that. Well, I mean, it's you know, you have you have uh, these. It's it's all over our currency. Again, it's it's explicitly in the Constitution. Again, as I've grown older and sort of read about it, you 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 see how how many of the sort of references. Yes, the founders were deists how or many of them were and and they had a, a particular sort of understanding but it's it's it is a very christian sort of uh uh founding and and a lot of the the reference are explicitly christian but sounds like I, differently so than than in britain
2: i think you're right but i think that i was i was a member of the first generation where that ceased to be true so i don't have as much memory and i wouldn't describe it that way i actually w- was somewhat shocked when i started actually meeting christians because i didn't know anything about christianity despite being born and raised in pennsylvania um i don't know if i really knew outwardly christian christians um so christianity to me was strange and it still is strange to me today, and I don't mean that pejoratively, I just mean that it's striking to me how outside of the mainstream Christians appear to be in, in present day America. I think it's intensified in the last 20 years, like maybe in the 90s, there were st- still vestiges of it. I do think that's the way America used to be, that there was a kind of um, biblical literacy. I don't remember ever hearing any friends in school Mentioning the Bible, or even the fact, or even a a verse. I'm trying to think. Did anyone ever like cite, like I don't know, like I I can't think of anything. And I actually remember, and I, I think I've written about this somewhere a while back. That I saw. I remember when I came back to D.C. in 2014, and this must have been maybe one or two years later, so maybe 2016 or something. I was at Starbucks here in D.C. and I I actually overheard two guys doing a prayer together. And I remember being so taken aback that I had seen a public display of Christianity. Cause I'm like, I just don't really see this stuff. And I remember the first time that I saw um, like a mainstream journalist or columnist, she identified herself in her Twitter bio. The first thing that she put was Christian. And I remember thinking to myself, this is radical. And I, you know, I'm I'm referring here to um, Elizabeth Brunick, um, who, you know, uh, and I think she still has that on her Twitter bio. Anyway, I'm it's a little bit of a long response to say that um, for me it was different. Hmm. For me it was different, but um, but you're also a little bit older than me. And I Josh, I don't know, you spent some time in the US. I don't know, I don't know what If what i just said resonates with you in terms of not seeing christianity in an explicit form or an outward form especially if you live
1: in liberal suburbs or close to a major city well i think the point is 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 a really good one in the way that it's this point about it being established in britain it's a kind of technical point but it does really matter because it is in schools it is in institutions um in a way that isn't allowed in america for the most part um So, I think in America, for me, it's always really dependent on what what community you're in. You know, I mean, you spend time with Vietnamese fishermen in East New Orleans, there's a church on every block. Um, You spend time in a lot of African American communities, and there's, you know, a huge attendance at church, certainly among some sectors. So, obviously, you know, the evangelical Bible, I I think it's just America, particularly nowadays, is so regionally polarized uh, and so grouped by ethnicities, identities, politics even, that uh, it really just it sort of depends where you are.
0: I mean, what what also what I'm getting at is that I, I wonder if to a certain extent, you know, I mean, this is working with Walter Mead and, and 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 Peter Berger and others of the American interest. For me, it was a sort of uh, a process of learning and also working for Adam Garfinkel, who's again, uh, also very uh, devoutly religious uh, person is, was, was, you know, talking to them more and then realizing the extent to which America itself is in some ways no less religious, I think, institutionally even, maybe not explicitly like in Britain, but it's there and yet it's hidden because Shoddy, my experience actually is quite close to yours, you know, except maybe, you know, I would go to a friend's house and and maybe the parents would make a say grace and I would be like, oh, ho, ho, you know, uh, I'm, we don't do that in my house, but you know, this is it's it's dinner, so you say this, or you know, going invited to a, uh, a Jewish friend's house for for a holiday, and then uh, you know, getting that experience. So it wasn't that it was completely secularized, and I wasn't ever so shocked by it. But but it's it it took a while for me to appreciate the extent to which America is also, I think, it's founded as a Christian country, and, and a lot of the precepts there don't necessarily rely on it because they're they're broader. But it's rooted in in, in a way, which is seems more explicit in Britain. I guess that's all I was getting at.
1: I, I found in America, if I was generalizing, I, I could count on one hand, the amount of conservatives I met who were, didn't have any religious faith. Yeah. I mean, it, is, it, it was, it doesn't, as you said, it's not always worn as a badge. It's not always immediately obvious, um, but it was every, you know, you get into a proper conversation with someone and it always came up. It was always a factor uh and informing you mean with conservative politics.
2: specific you mean with political conservatives yeah that's what you yeah, mean yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely
1: yeah. yeah um it was everywhere uh and i'm someone who was brought up in religious faith that's something i'm very interested in so uh i was always that that would not happen in the uk you just it's just not it's very it's very unusual for someone to express religious faith uh in any conversation nowadays we're such an atheist country i know America's becoming. America's more atheist. And we discussed that, Shadi, you've written on that very interestingly, but it's still so much more ubiquitous. It's such an outlier. still.
2: Yeah, you know, um, just to switch gears a bit, because I want to make sure that we don't forget this as we as we begin to to wrap up. Um, I think that the elephant in the room, and I I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it, um, is the British Empire.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Talk about it. <laughs> Talk about it. Go. <laughs> right. Well, well, there was an interesting <laughs> narrative <laughs> that, ke- that came out of the pages of the New York Times and elsewhere uh, about, you know, not venerating the queen because she was an imperial figure in some ways and, uh, and presided over the bloody decolonization of the empire and, uh, you know, British depredations in Kenya and, and that the British monarchy as an institution was, was at the heart of, of empire. Um, so well, yeah, so a- I'm curious
2: to what extent that
1: that that's accurate. I mean, I think
2: that, and when we talk about Muslims in Britain, I sort of wonder, you know, many of them come from Commonwealth nations, nations that were colonized by the British. There is that mm. history. Mm. And if they see the monarchy as somehow, I, I think there's no way to talk about the British empire without talking about the, the monarchy. I mean, there, there's some intertwining mm. there.
1: And both are so good. So I just wonder, <laughs> so yeah, I just I mean, wonder, like, you know. I, 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 yeah, sorry, you finish your question, go on.
2: No, I just, I just wonder how, like, if you're a British Muslim and you're thinking to yourself, well, this is a symbol of national identity, the queen and now the king is something we all share. However, there is that history. And I don't know if people are thinking about it that consciously and trying to disentangle. But I imagine for some people it's, it's a complicated relationship.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. It definitely is. And, and I was probably a bit glib earlier when I was talking about or generalising about the views of British Muslims. I think that's probably quite a diversity of opinion. I think you can feel very positively about the Queen as a, as a figure while also being quite sceptical about the monarchy. Um, yeah, it, it is a little bit conflicted, but I think that most people um, who actually read the history and look at it carefully realise that given the situation she inherited and given the limits on her power that we discussed earlier, Queen Elizabeth was actually generally pretty good uh, on this issue of empire. You know, as I said, she danced with Kwame Nkrumah, uh, who was, I think the CIA were probably sort of still tracking him at that point. I mean, he was a sort of quite a controversial figure. She had a great friendship with Nelson Mandela. Uh, she, publicly disagreed in an almost unprecedented way with Maggie Thatcher over sanctioning apartheid South Africa um you know I'm not she wasn't a, a revolutionary Marxist but uh, <laughs> broadly speaking she was a, a person of um who believed in the end of empire and accepted the end of empire and didn't do anything to push back when she might have done more uh she she reminds me a little bit of uh you know, the old aristocrat in The Leopard as uh, someone who understood that for everything to stay the same, everything had to change. Mm. Um, so, so I think that's one reason why people felt positive about the Queen. But, but clearly, obviously, the institution of monarchy uh, is, was at the heart of empire. Um, but I don't know that, you know, British kings weren't sort of rampaging around the world. I mean, most of the empire was set up by sort of rapacious merchants. Um, you know, certainly the Indian part of the empire was, was the East India Company. It was basically a private enterprise. It wasn't directed from uh, Buckingham Palace. So it, it's a little bit complex. That I mean, America was set up by people who were fleeing the monarchy for the most part. Um, although in Virginia, there were sort of more royalist types. But, you know, even they were there mostly to just make tobacco and have a new start and get some free land. I mean, it, you know, the, the empire was not a royal creation. It had the royal yeah. imprimatur and it, it had the royal, the, the monarch as its emperor i suppose so you can't t- deny that um, but it, it's a slightly more complex picture i think than just uh than just a straight up sort of yeah, imperialism yeah. equals monarchy
0: right it wasn't monarchy I mean, it-, it was <laughs> capitalism that you're blaming correctly as the as a journalist at the <laughs> times of london you're saying capitalism <laughs> caused the empire and all the ills of the world noted <laughs>
2: the, the the times in britain is an anti-capitalist newspaper uh, not
1: not not currently no i mean <laughs> <laughs> no that i mean uh, uh, I think capitalism, in many ways, is more of a driving force than than monarchy, um, whatever you think of it.
0: Yeah. No, no, I mean, I agree. And then monarchy and capitalism and empire, all good.
2: <laughs> well, that's another <laughs> matter. <laughs> uh. Well, you know, just, just, um, just to put a finer point on the empire thing, because, you know, I think that nostalgia, there is, when we think about the monarchy, it brings about sentiments of nostalgia that people want to remember the way things were Mm. to some extent at least right and i and i just wonder i don't actually have a great sense of this um how do british people today think about the legacy of empire when they're being nostalgic about previous periods whatever they might be i mean presumably some people long for british greatness and yeah. You know, when Britain was the superpower, when Britain was feared and also to some extent admired um, to different degrees, I, I I just like how do people disent I mean, can are there people who are like, yes, there were good, good things about empire, except for the whole colonialism thing? I mean, probably it's a hard position to actually maintain coherently, but I, I, I just like... Neil Ferguson, he, actually,
0: I mean, Neil Ferguson maintains that in several books. He does, yeah. I mean, he does. quite quite, quite consistently and quite prominently.
1: But anyway, Josh, don't Yeah, wanna... I mean, no, it's, it's a good question. We're kind of only really having that debate in the last 10 years or so, really, um, which may seem a little belated. I think I wouldn't underestimate the extent to which a lot of people in Britain didn't necessarily care that much about empire or even have that much stake in it. It was, in the same way that it is in America today to some extent, something of an elite uh, preoccupation, the empire uh, and, and foreign policy. Uh, not exclusively by any means, but um, you know, and if, if Britain got into a big war then obviously people tended to rally around the flag. But, but it was something of an elite preoccupation. It was primarily the elites who benefited from it. Um, but yeah, I think you're spot on Shadi. I think people have a, a somewhat inchoate sense of missing the great bit of Great Britain um, and a sense of loss and a sense of uh, diminishment uh, on the world stage. Never never more so than this week, I would say. Right. Um, but I don't think many people miss Empire that much. I think that people broadly accept now that it's not a, a very modish way of uh, going about things um, and that we ought to be pretty apologetic and ashamed of some of the excesses of empire, whether it's, you know, the Amritsar massacre or, so, sorry, not the Amritsar massacre, that was later, whether it was the uh, Indian mutiny or the, um, you know, the Mau, Mau rebellion or whatever it is. Um, but um, I don't think people are that ashamed of it. I don't think they pay it that much attention. And I don't think, I think if you really got someone privately in, in your confidence, they would probably say, well, a lot of the other empires were worse, weren't they? The Belgians were going around the Congo, sort of chopping everyone's hands off, and we did, you know, we did bring them the railways and cricket and the British legal system, and it wasn't all a disaster. It's not, it's not very fashionable to say that now. Uh, that that, but um, you know, that view that was espoused by your Egyptian grandmother, I think, yeah. is not wholly uncommon. Um, but, you know, huh. it's it's not a public view really anymore, or, or only if you go on to the sort of um, hardish right of opinion. Fascinating.
2: Well, uh, <laughs> okay, so you guys, I mean, you guys really got a treat here. I mean, you... <laughs> Peered into the british soul the british mind
0: <laughs> or at least a british man's very... soul and mind yeah one man's
2: soul. <laughs> they are very interesting people these these british these brits you should
0: go visit them now especially with a dollar is strong and the pound yeah is
1: come 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 spend your dollars we want them
0: <laughs> we need them yes <laughs> all right josh thanks this so much really josh. fun really good that was great to you, guys all lovely right
2: lovely to talk to you yeah okay